I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Hebrews chapter 4.14. Uh, there is a Bible app event for this service, uh, sermon rather, and you can follow along that way. You'll need to have that on your phone because since we stream, we cut away, we gave, we turned off the free Wi-Fi. So uh, sorry about that. But if you have that on your phone, you can follow along on your Bible app event that way. Um, talking about patterns, that's what we're talking about. I find patterns very interesting, and I find them pretty powerful and, and pretty relevant in our lives, so to speak. Um, I remember a band named Cheap Trick. How many are old enough to remember Cheap Trick? Anybody? Yeah, 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 yeah. Man, I loved them. When I was uh, in high school, they were doing what they did, uh, and they were doing it, in my estimation, very well. And I loved their drummer. Remember his name? Bun E. Carlos. And I thought, this guy, he might be the greatest drummer that I've ever heard. It was just so good to hear him play those drums. And who couldn't love what he did at the beginning of Ain't That a Shame at Budokan, right? And and the other stuff, the drum solos were fantastic. And then, just a few years ago, I saw him on a YouTube video. And he said, you know, all that drumming that I did when I was with Cheap Trick, what I did, I just took other drum licks from other drummers, and I just strung them together one after another, after another, after another. And it occurred to me, that's why I loved him. Because I recognize those patterns from other other artists. And yeah, wow, that's good drumming there. I love the pattern. Patterns are very interesting, the way they work in our lives. Some people see patterns and are apt to see patterns better than others. For example, great football players can see patterns quite easily. And they study the defense and they look at the pattern. Well, when when a football the offense does this or when the quarterback does that, and I don't know if you remember, but when Ben Roethlisberger and Antonio Brown were playing and they were breaking some sealer records for catches and passes, um, they said they were on the same Wi-Fi. Yeah, we're on the same Wi-Fi together. No, they weren't. Here's what was happening there. And as they talked about it, you could see it. Ben would say this. He would say, you know, he just knows where to run when things break down. And I throw it there. I know where he's going to run. And, and Brown would say, Ben just, he just throws it where I know to run. You know, and what happened was both of them understood when the play has broken down, here's the optimum place to put the football. One of them would run there. One of them would throw there. It was a pattern and they used it well. We all see patterns. People who regularly see conspiracy theories often have a heightened awareness of patterns. They spot them where others don't. So they see a politician lying here and they see a politician tell a lie over there and they say, ah, there's a pattern. Or they see a government that's kind of um, using disinformation here and a government using disinformation there, and they say, ha, that's a pattern. Or they notice how absolute power corrupts over here and absolute power corrupts there, and they say, aha, that's a pattern. And pretty soon, they're sure that FDR knew the bombing of Pearl Harbor was going to happen before it happened. And they're also sure that we've never been to the moon because it fits the pattern. And they're sure that there is a lizard man in the White House, you know? <laughs> right there, I can see them. The red arrow's pointing at them, right? Patterns. We we see these patterns, and they're very powerful things in our lives. When I think about it, I think that ability to learn a pattern is something God has given us. It, it even functions to our advantage. For example, take the death cap mushroom. Uh, you may be a guy who goes out in the woods and picks mushrooms and eats them. I don't do that. Uh, I want my mushrooms coming right from the grocery store, right? That's the death cap mushroom. If you eat that, the way to tell if it was poison or not is you're dead by the time you get to the ER. That's it right there, right? And when I think of the death cap mushroom and other things like it, I think, how'd they figure out that was poison? 
Who was the first guy that ate that? I know who it was. It was Mikey, right? He won't like it. He hates everything, right? Yeah, right? And, and what happened if humankind had not noticed this pattern? When you eat that mushroom, you die. There'd be a lot less of us around today. Patterns actually serve us. They, they can save lives. And God gave us this, the ability to discern them in the world in which we live. And he gave us the ability to discern patterns in him so we can rejoice in them and so that we can imitate them. We've talked about a couple already. We talked about this pattern in God's nature where he recreates and he renews. We talked about the pattern in his nature where he pardons and he justifies. The pattern I want to speak to you about today is how he is a priest who substitutes and atones and purifies. And like all the other patterns, these are adapted from a couple chapters, couple pages rather, out of a book by Ed Welch called Shame Interrupted. He is the priest who substitutes, atones, and purifies. We probably should talk about that word priest because most of us, when we think of priests, probably think of the guy at the church that has a priest. Maybe the Episcopal priest or the Orthodox priest or the Catholic priest or a priest that we saw in a movie. And we don't really think about what was the priest in the Bible doing? What was his role in the Bible? And his major role is this. The priest in the Bible was a facilitator of our relationship with God. And he so much to this very day facilitates our relationship with God that many of the things we do as a church could not happen were it not for the priest. For example, worship could not happen if it weren't for the priest. Discipleship wouldn't happen if it weren't for the priest. Prayer wouldn't happen. Communion wouldn't happen. Healing wouldn't happen. Having a good church family to fellowship with and rejoice with, none of that would be possible without the priest, because without the priest, we would all remain alienated from God. And so we wouldn't be worshiping, we wouldn't be praying, we wouldn't be seeing people healed, we would all be separate from God without the priest. This idea of the priest is so important that God actually, he wrote it right into the code, into the law, for the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt and went into the kingdom. He said, I would like the tribe of Levi to be priests. Now, think about it. There's only 12 tribes. So I want one in 12 of you to behave as a priest. That's a pretty high priority in God's mind. And again, it really all boils down to the priests of God facilitated the relationship between the people of God and God himself. Priests function as a mediator, as a go-between, as the one who made it work. Now, when you read the Bible, and again, we're talking about the word priest, when you read the Bible, you find that among the priests, there was a high priest who was ultimately responsible to make sure that everything worked in this relationship, this covenant that God had with his people. He made sure the sacrifices were being offered. He made sure that the blessing was being poured out on the people. Once a year, he had a very important task, and that was on the Day of Atonement, he made a covering for the sins of the people. He offered an atoning sacrifice. And then when Jesus comes along in the New Testament or in the New Covenant, we see that shadow of things brought into light because Jesus is our high priest. Now, I ask you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. You thought, are you ever going to have us read there? Ha, you're in luck. Hebrews 4, we're just going to read two verses here, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for 
We do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet, he did not sin. Now, they may seem like a small passage to you, but it is packed with important information. It shows us Jesus' priestly passion, and it calls him the great high priest. I mean, it was right there in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I have Greek tools. And that word great in the Greek is mega. And the Greek word mega, when it's used in English, is pronounced mega. That's what it is. We have a mega high priest. And quite honestly, (laughs) that superlative fits him well, if you think about it. What the author of Hebrews is saying is this. He's adding a superlative, mega, to a superlative, high priest. In other words, the the phrase high priest is simply inadequate to explain the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just a high priest. He's the mega high priest. And any priest that was before him pales in comparison, and there'll never be another one to come after him that will even come close. He's the mega high priest who, whose most essential responsibility is to look after the covenant, to perform the atonement. Once a year, the high priest had to do this thing. It was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he'd get two goats, two little goats, and he'd take them. One of them he would sacrifice to carry away the sins of the people. And the other one, well, let me tell you what he did with this goat. He'd take this little goat, and he would put his hands on the head of this little goat. And he would engage in a lengthy recitation of the sins of the people of God over the past year. Oh God, we have strayed from your commandments. God, we have not honored you in the way we should. We have behaved selfishly. We have been careless in our worship of you. We have been careless in the way we treat people. We have been divisive. And he would just go on in this long litany as he has his hands on this living goat that's standing there. And in doing that, what he is doing is confessing the sin of the people, not just his own sin, but everyone's sin, because he's the priest. He's interceding on behalf of the people of God before God. And then he would take that goat, that goat that is now known as the scapegoat. By the way, that's where that word comes from, scapegoat. He would take that goat out into the desert, and he would release it, never to return to Israel. Go, be gone, goat. And that goat would be gone. It was a visual representation of how God takes our sins away when we confess them. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins. Now there's the other goat. The high priest would take the other goat and he would go into the Holy of Holies. Actually, he probably just took the blood of that goat. And he took the blood of a bull as well. The blood of the bull that he took with him was to atone for his own sins and the sin of his family. And the blood of that second goat that he would take was to sprinkle on the altar, to purify all things, to cover it all with blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no purification, there's no remission of sin. And this is a pattern that God established. It is a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do thousands of years later on the cross. You understand that on the cross, Jesus made atonement for our sin. That he carried away our sins, not on the head of a goat, but on his very person. 
And he didn't carry them off to the desert to wander around. He took them to the cross so they could come to an end and go to the grave with him. And his shed blood atones for our sin like the blood of an animal never could. His shed blood is sufficient that one atonement covers you for eternity. It covers anyone who trusts him from eternity past to eternity future. I want to talk to you about that word atonement for just a moment. Atone, I've heard people say atonement is at-one-ment with God. Have you heard that? Because you're estranged from God and then he atones for your sins and now you're one with God. That's a clever thing to say, but it's not entirely accurate grammatically. Because atone means to cover. If a priest says, I will atone for your sins, he's saying, I will cover over your sins. When Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing, the first instinct they had was to cover themselves with fig leaves. They hadn't been ashamed of anything before. Now suddenly they're ashamed of themselves because sin brings with it shame. And they say, we must atone for this. We must cover this somehow or other. We have to cover. And God, God comes along and kills an animal and says, this will atone. This will cover. The fig leaves are inadequate. And there's the first sacrifice ever made to atone for human sin. That pattern of atonement by the great high priest is deeply engraved upon upon the hearts of humankind, so much so that when we see evil, we often want to run and hide. And when we see it in ourselves, we often want to somehow or other cover ourselves up, not just cover up our sin, but cover ourselves up because we sense we need atonement. The great high priest is the one who gives it. Jesus' priestly pattern is to give atonement. A second thing these verses indicate is we have a high priest who ascended into heaven. It's right there in that verse. It says, we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. And that fits with the pattern of being a priest. He facilitates the relationship. Six chapters later, the author of Hebrews is going to say this. He's going to say, when the priest had offered, he's talking about Jesus, For all time, one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of the Father for two reasons. One is he sat down to say, I'm done. It is finished. Atonement is complete once and for all. But there's a second reason he's sitting where he's sitting. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And more than one place in Scripture we're told that he intercedes on our behalf there. For example, in Romans chapter 8, in verse 34, the scripture says, Who then is it who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Wow. What a great high priest who ascended into heaven to the right hand of God. This is the priestly pattern that Jesus shows. The text goes on and it tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. You might have skipped over that and said, well, of course we know who it is. But understand in that phrase, Son of God, in his, in his identity, in his person, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Theologians who like to give impressive names to things say, that's the hypostatic union. 
I always thought a hypostatic union was something in the lawnmower that kept everything in sync in the rear end, but I don't think it is. That's hydrostatic, isn't it? Hypostatic union is what they call that. It's a part of the mystery of God. Listen, it's not theological trivia. It's an important part of the mystery of God. Let me tell you why. Since Jesus is fully God, he can act on behalf of God. He can offer himself pure and spotless as a lamb slain for our sins. He can carry that which does not belong to him because he has no sin of his own to carry, so he can carry ours. He can judge on God's behalf and say atonement is made. It's done. He can say that because he's God and he can act on God's behalf. And since he is fully human, remember the hypostatic union, he can bear our sins because he is one of us. He speaks for us. He lives for us. He dies for us. And he's raised for us. No mere human ever could have pulled that off. No mere human could have ever done what the Son of God did and what he enacted. And it is only because of Jesus that we have this relationship with God. It is facilitated by our high priest. It's a priestly pattern of God. In this pattern, the scripture tells us that he is the one who gets us. It says that when it speaks about he empathizes with us. He sympathizes with us. You know, when uh, the pandemic first came out, there was a thing floating around on social media that just made me laugh. It was obviously photoshopped. In fact, this image now is from the Babylon Bee, which is a satire news site, right? And it says, inspiring, celebrities spell out, we're all in this together with their yachts. Let me tell you, if you got a yacht like that, we are not in this together because I don't have a canoe, right? Yeah. <laughs> it made me laugh, though. It's fake sympathy, right? It's pretending sympathy. And fake sympathy is absolutely useless. But our high priest, he doesn't have fake sympathy. He has not just walked a mile in your shoes. He has walked endless miles in our shoes. The text says we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. He knows what temptation is. He knows what the temptation to despair feels like when you have your heart broken by someone. He understands firsthand the anger and the temptation that you have toward bitterness when someone betrays you and does you wrong. He gets that. <laughs> he has felt the sense of outrage, even a temptation toward rage, when evil triumphs. The Bible says that because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he never ridicules you when you fall. Never. He reaches down and picks you back up. And he doesn't scoff when you repent. Oh yeah, you repented of this a hundred times. <laughs> yeah, that means a lot. He never does that. Never. He embraces you warmly. And he doesn't tell you, I wish you would just grow up when you ask him for help. He helps you grow up compassionately. His kind, loving, empathetic, caring, and helpful way facilitates your relationship with God. And by the way, this text says that he is without sin. 
There's this motto we have at Kermansville Alliance, real God, real life, real people. And what that means is we believe God is real. He is not a sociological or psychological construct. We believe that life is real, and sometimes it's very difficult, and sometimes it's something to rejoice over. We believe that people need to be real. And so we really avoid virtue signaling personally. And we avoid we avoid posing and pretending we're someone we're not. That last one is really important to me. It has been for all my ministry. Because some people tend to put their pastor on a pedestal, and I resist that with all my being. All my being. I avoid letting anyone think I have my act together and I have arrived. Because I haven't, and I don't have my act together. We all know what it feels like when we put our trust in someone, and then we learn, that person was a pretender. How many celebrity pastors do you know who've been exposed? How many personal people do you know who have found, who you have found to be fakers? And how does that feel? Listen, that never happens with Jesus. That never happens with your great high priest. And it is not because Jesus does not want to be on the pedestal and avoids that. It never happens to Jesus because Jesus would never fall from the pedestal. He never fails. He never sins. We do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin without stain or wrinkle, without spot or blemish. And so he facilitates our relationship with God. Now, when you think about this priestly pattern of Jesus, I want to suggest to you that it is one that is worth replicating <laughs> or imitating. And you might look and you might say, how can I possibly do that? I'm not the great high priest. I never ascended to the heaven. I'm not the son of God. And I have trouble empathizing with anybody. And when it comes to being without sin, ha, no. Remember real people? Nah, listen, you can reproduce this pattern. I say that because of verses like 1 Peter 2.9, it says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So you are a priest, part of a priesthood. And you reflect this priestly pattern of God when you help others in their relationship with God. Remember, that's what a priest does. He facilitates the people's relationship with God. And so when you're doing that, when you're helping someone relate to God and find God and love God and be known by God and know God, you're helping them and you're reproducing Jesus' pattern. When you pray for them, I'm sorry, when you pray with them about something, you are following the pattern of Jesus. When you forgive an offense against you, you're following the pattern of Jesus. When you join them, invite them to join you in coming to church or just watching church online, you're following the pattern of Jesus because you are facilitating their relationship with him. But it's not just there that you can act as priest. When you intercede on behalf of others, you're acting as a great high priest. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. I intercede on people's behalf all the time. When my children have a difficult decision to make, God, help them act wisely. Help them think this through. Help them do the right thing. 
I'm following Jesus' pattern. When you're thinking of your neighbor and the trouble that they're going through, and you pray for them, you're interceding for them, you're following an intercessor's pattern. When you're praying for healing for someone, you're following the intercessor's pattern. You follow Christ's pattern when you help people connect with God. You're a believer, and therefore you're part of the family of God. And compared to people that don't know God, even though you might feel like, I don't know too much about God, that hypostatic union thing, I have no idea what that is, still don't get that. You probably know more than people who are completely disconnected from God. So when you hear someone saying something, that's just not right about God, you can say, that's cool, but here's how I see God. This is what the Bible says. You can clear out misconceptions. You can show them your grace and show them his grace along the way. You can demonstrate his forgiving nature. And you can follow this pattern simply by being empathetic and gracious. Religious people, people who think their religion is going to get them to heaven, they very seldom have sympathy or are gracious. But as people who have found forgiveness and life simply by trusting in Christ, sympathy should come natural for us. And grace should characterize our interaction with people. Because we're all on the same journey. And when I see someone struggling here, I, I know I'm not too far from that same struggle. Let me help you with that struggle. And when, when I see someone that needs encouragement, let me encourage you. When I see someone that needs a little guidance, let me, let me just help you out here empathetically, graciously. Oh, and one more thing. If we're going to follow the pattern of the high priests, live well. Live well. Think of what Peter says when he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And if you do those things, you're following the pattern of the high priest. You know, Jesus has done everything necessary for you to have a relationship with God. He is the great high priest who substitutes his life for yours on the cross, who atones, covering over your sin so that you're no longer guilty of your sin who purifies and changes you, sanctifies you, and makes you holy. He is the great high priest who does these things. And when you turn from your sin and trust him, you find all the work's been done. He did it all. Following after him, walking in forgiveness and newness of life. It's a natural response to that. And you become part of this royal priesthood who gets to facilitate similar relationships in the lives of people around you. You feel a little bit like the Apostle Paul must have felt when he said in 2 Corinthians 5.20, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You get to help people come along in their relationship with him. I want to pray that we could do that, that we would follow this priestly pattern of Christ. If you're comfortable doing so, would you please stand as I pray? Let's bow our hearts together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for Jesus, the priest who substitutes, atones, and purifies. We are thankful for his heart of love and compassion that has rescued us from a life that is meaningless, from a life that is futile. To live a life that is full and a life that is focused on on you, your goodness and your glory, God. None of this would be possible were it not for the priest, the great high priest, who substitutes, atones, and purifies. 
We rely on you, Jesus, and your death on our behalf. Having turned from our sins, we are trusting you for our forgiveness, for our atonement. And we look for you to make us who you want us to be. Part of who you want us to be, God, is like you in a sense of helping others have a relationship with you. Show us creative ways to do us. Do that. Guide us in doing that. By the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. As more